love the proletariat as a vanguard because you're all going to end up like us in the long run anyway. The lump in the proletariat is part of that explanation of why a revolution does not succeed. Repression is very much so the name of the game. I consider myself a rational person. I'm political and I have always been interested in politics. And when I was in high school, I bought all the uh, Marx and Lenin books uh, when I was studying you know, philosophy and politics. Uh, I read Trotsky when I was in high school. I read Marx and Engels when I was in high school. And I was sort of aware of what the communism and what the Communist Manifesto and what other Marxist thinkers were, were somewhat about. And then I became a businessman and I went into industry and I worked in the advertising business and then I worked in the communications and talent business for, for almost 40 years. But I was always aware of political issues going on around us. But I also always lived in New York for the last 40 some odd years. And I saw the rise of the underclass in New York in the last 40 years in a shocking manner. And I did not understand as a rational person why we would begin to live with homeless uh, why we would have so many drug-addicted people, why we would have people who were mentally ill wandering the streets, living in the subways. And it dawned on me that something was really wrong with our society, and it didn't really make any sense to me. This grew and grew as more and more anecdotal things happened. Like I would visit my father for 10 years uh, and take the train through Penn Station in New York City. And when I did that, uh, I, I was aware that all these people were on this train and going home to... Uh, Landome and Great Neck and Manhasset, very affluent, extremely wealthy suburbs. Homes in two, three, four million dollars were not unusual. These people made a lot of money. Um, they were successful business people. And they were sharing this Penn Station area with like literally, you know, people who were mentally ill, homeless people wandering around. And I never I could not understand why we would live like this. How did it all evolve and how did it happen? And so one day, about a year and a half ago, I was passing a bookstore and I needed a book for a, a travel trip that I was taking. And by chance, I decided I would buy a used copy of the Communist Manifesto. So I'm reading the Communist Manifesto on the train for, for about two hours, and I am in a state of shock. There in the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx and, and, and Frederick Engels explained the rise of the lumpen proletariat in a capitalist society as if they were describing America today the dangerous class, the social scum, that passively rotting mass thrown off by the lowest layers of old society may, here and there, be swept into the movement by a proletarian revolution. Its conditions of life, however, prepare it far more for the part of a bribed tool of reactionary intrigue. We created this underclass of homeless, underclass of incarcerated, underclass of addicted, and it was, it was a growing underclass. They were living amongst us. And I did not understand why capitalism would do that. It seems so self-defeating to, to, to create this enormous underclass. It was expensive, um, the incarceration fees. Why would a society actually create this? So I just wanted to hear from some people who actually understood why we would do this or had theories on why we would do this and explain what the lump and proletariat were and why we've evolved to this point. Joining us today, I'm pleased to say, are three preeminent Marxist scholars. Dr. Clyde Barrow, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. Dr. Suzanne Schroederberg, professor and appointee to the Departments of Political Studies and Global Development Studies at Queens College in Canada. And Dr. Isaac Kamola, Associate Professor of the Department of Political Science at Trinity College in Connecticut. Well, if you don't mind, Mr. Clyde Barrow, uh, I wouldn't mind just jumping in here and giving you a little bit of background and, and explanation on this. I know that my own interest in, in the lumpen proletariat uh, you know, goes way back to my own childhood. You know, I grew up in a working class family, but I was also acutely aware of the fact that we had relatives who were uh, not really working class. They worked sometimes, they were in jail sometimes, uh, they were addicted to drugs most of the time or to, to alcohol. And, and I had a fascination, I, I had a, a sort of fascination with that, but I'd said the first time that the word came into my vocabulary was, was just as with you, uh, reading the Communist Manifesto as, as an undergraduate, <laughs> uh, which is primarily about the confrontation between the capitalist class and the proletariat, but there are some interesting passages in there about the lumpen proletariat, and it really captured my interest. But uh, as a concept, but it, it's not something that you really find 
at the center of Marx's thought, uh, with the exception of a couple of, of his writings during the 1850s. My interest was renewed when I was in graduate school. I was in Los Angeles during the 1980s when uh, Ronald Reagan became president. And I remember just suddenly seeing the streets of downtown Los Angeles just flooded literally with tens of thousands of homeless people as uh, Ronald Reagan uh, and his followers uh, cut the social safety net out from under people. Uh, and then I, I remember one time driving back home from Los Angeles to San Antonio, and there was just literally a stream of people migrating and hitchhiking across Interstate 10 headed for Los Angeles during Christmas because they were looking for warm weather. So it was something I'd wanted to write about really my entire career and finally decided it was time to do something about it uh, with the election of, of uh, Donald Trump, uh, who I would argue uh, is exactly what Marx referred to as the emperor of the lumpen proletariat. We can talk more about that, that later. But I'll just say a little bit about the origins of the word. Uh, you know, you used the word underclass. Uh, Marx and Engels used the term lumpen proletariat, and it's a term that is peculiar to Marxism. It's a, it's a word that was actually invented by Marx and Engels uh, in 1846, although it didn't actually appear in print. The Communist Manifesto is the first time the word ever appears in print. And just to give you a little background on, on how the word evolved, you know, the word proles uh, from the Latin means baby. It goes back to the Roman Empire. Uh, and essentially, the function of the proletariat uh, were to produce babies to staff the Roman legion. That was their sociological function in the Roman Empire. And so the term proletariat had a very pejorative meaning all the way up through the Middle Ages into the early industrial era. Uh, and when Marx and Engels began to look at the emergence of industrial society in Western Europe, uh, they were looking at something which was being called the proletariat, but it was very different from what had been the historical usage of that term for several hundreds of years. And so they invented the, the German term lumpen proletariat, and the word lumpen itself has some kind of double <laughs> meanings in the, in the German language, but it basically means rags. Uh, it was the proletariat that was below the proletariat yep. that you know, dressed in, in rags. Essentially, then what they did was invent the term lumpen proletariat to designate the group of people who had historically become called proletarians so they could sort of change the meaning of the word proletariat to mean something fundamentally different, which was the rising class of the industrial proletariat, which they saw as the carriers of socialism. Right. Totally understood. Thank you. Please, Suzanne, uh, Isaac, you want to jump in and, and tell us your, your background and uh, how this uh, became an interest of you and what you're studying now? Yeah, sure. Um, Suzanne Soderberg. I uh, became interested, and I'm, I'm going to use a different term, um, but similar, similar meaning um, is uh, the Marx invoked um, instead of Lopen proletariat. Um, I use or prefer to use the relative surplus population. I use that term, especially the, you know, people don't obviously always use the term relative. Um, they shorten it to surplus populations. But relative is really important, even when we're thinking through also the questions that you, you two have raised, um, which are very much so part of, you know, why does this continue, right? How does this become right. formalized, right? right? And if you go back, I mean, the relative hooks us into what Marx talks about, the historical, that the liberal proletariat or the relative surplus population are relative to capital accumulation itself. So in other words, you have to sort of understand what the nature of capital accumulation is in order to understand the the expression the 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 function of the surplus population at any given geographical or historical juncture and that led me to sort of you know I've always in my research been interested in you know how do we explain capitalism now how has this changed at the global level at the urban scale or at the national scale in the global north and global south and i started looking at when i really started using this was um, looking at consumer debt uh, and looking mm -hmm. at consumer debt in the United States and mm -hmm. looking at consumer debt in Mexico, and not just any type of consumer debt, right, mortgages in the middle class, but how the under and unemployed, which is usually how I um, sort of come to grips with, with the relative surplus population or the lumpen proletariat, um, 
have constantly had to rely on student loans, payday loans, subprime credit cards, subprime mortgages, as in the case of, of Mexico, that's being peddled in Mexico. And how is this all normalized and why? So that also, as a political scientist, leads me to question what state power is. And when I was looking at this research historically, empirically, analytically, um, I sort of coined the term debt fair states. Um, and debt fair state is, is you know, a neoliberal form of, of intervention. But for me, it, it entails a lot of rhetorical uh, power and a lot of regulatory power in terms of normalizing this mass dependence of the surplus population on expensive credit to live. And how that constantly, you know, unfolds and plugs into the global financial system, but how people also, you know, student loans, you can't make a student loan, well, then let's go to a payday loan, or you know what, my social security check, you know, I can't yes. live off this, so let's go and exchange that social security check for a payday loan, right, because yes. they accept government checks, all right. Um, and then the second project, I sort of continued with that, and Loic Wacant, um, you know, author of, of Prison Fair, etc., which is also, you know, somebody that, that is uh, spoke on, on this topic and has written on this topic extensively, sort of pushed me, said, you know, you talk about the United States and Mexico, but I dare you to go and do this in, in Western Europe, where they have very strong social welfare states. Um, will this actually occur there? And so I went over to Europe. <laughs> um, 2015, I'm in Berlin, and I thought, you know, I'm going to look at rental housing. 85% of the people in Berlin rent. Um, and there was a growing eviction and homeless rate there. And I went there, and my mouth just dropped. I mean, I studied in Frankfurt right in the late 1990s. I couldn't believe the, the amount of poverty, um, people living in these homeless shelters on the street, migrants from, from Eastern Europe, you know, in these, these you know, homeless tent cities, which are everywhere. But at the same time, Jonathan, what was really interesting is that there's this wave of refugees in 2015, right, yep. from Syria primarily. Yep. And this is another level layer of, of the surplus population coming in. And, and I thought, oh, my gosh. And, you know, I heard horrific stories of, and Berlin was, for people that don't know, Berlin was and, and continues to be the largest host city of refugees in Europe. Yes. And also one of the most affluent countries, capital of one of the most affluent countries. And there were horrific stories of refugees, newborns living in homeless shelters, right? Um, and then, you know, hopefully we can talk about this later, but also all the, the conflict between either the refugee, oh, well, you're giving refugees these shelters. What about our homeless people in Berlin that all of a sudden became really important? Yes. <laughs> no one cared about them before 2015, really. Um, so I saw a lot of social conflict and competition even amongst the surplus population. Um, so that, that, that was really, really, really interesting. And this sort of played itself out in different ways in Vienna, even Vienna with its wonderful housing model um, where, you know, 60% of the people live in these amazing social housing units. There's still evictions, there's still homelessness, and there's still this exclusion of this sort of along racial lines of these refugees as well. So that's how I got into it. I mean, I'm always questioning, how does this relate to capitalism? How do we understand capitalism more concretely? And how does then these, these you know, relative surplus population change historically and geographically? Right. Okay. Wow. Isaac? Great. Thanks for having me on the program. And I, I come at this question from a kind of a slightly different angle. Um, my right. research is on, um, I examine kind of politics of higher education, but I also examine the politics of and economics of African anti-colonial struggles. And I'm particularly interested in the question of how African anti-colonial stru struggles can help us think about the contemporary political mo moment. And I think that what is interesting about African anti-colonial struggles of the mid uh, 20th century was this real question of what makes revolution possible, right? And I, I think that for Marx and Engels, the question of the lump and proletariat was a really important question, right? Which is, if you have an industrialized country and you have a proletariat, 
and you have the makings of a revolution and that revolution fails, why? There must be some reason for it. And the, the lumpen proletariat is part of that explanation of why a revolution does not succeed. You three have really different lenses and that's wonderful. Um, but I would ask you now to put those those lenses to a, a different focus than your, your normal field of study. And let's discuss America and the lumpen proletariat as you would define it through your lenses today or discuss it through your lenses today. Why would a society as wealthy and, uh, and affluent as America can be um, have such a enormously growing underclass that you described, I think, Clyde, with the, uh, the homeless that you saw in Los Angeles? And I, by myself, about a year and a half ago, saw those homeless tents in, in Los Angeles. They're bigger than ever. It's, 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 it's a city within a city in downtown Los Angeles. They just simply camped out and taken over, you mm -hmm. know, 20 blocks or something in, in, in downtown Los Angeles. It's shocking. And Suzanne, to your point about debt, uh, this, this statistic that um, half of America could not afford a $400 unexpected expense mm -hmm. without borrowing the money to pay for it or they Absolutely. couldn't pay it back. Yep. Yep. This, this has been making the headlines in CNN. Uh, actually, Peter Thiel, the Trump supporter, wrote mm -hmm. a long piece uh, before Trump was elected claiming that, you know, Trump would fix this, that he would make this better, that there's something so wrong with American society that that number that the, of Americans that could not afford $400 expense, that, you know, the liberals had broken the society and, and Trump was going to fix that. It was a big point of Peter Thiel's. And uh, obviously, I would argue that the opposite has occurred. Probably less people could afford a $400 expense than before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... We, um, let, let's talk about American society and what, why, what is it in all of your minds uh, that capitalism in America, is it a unique to American capitalism? Suzanne, you're kind of saying, no, it's European capitalism also. Mm -hmm. Is it just endemic to capitalism or is it poor people have always been with us? What's the take on this now that we've, we've created this, uh, this lumpen proletariat that is just visible to everybody now? Everybody sees it. And I think everybody's scared that it's going to really overwhelm, you know, the society. If I could pick this up, I wanted to, to tie oh. some of my thoughts into what Suzanne had said earlier about the relative surplus population. And this is Clyde. Uh, yes. In Marx's analysis of capitalism, we can start from the simple premise that, that capitalism is about making profit. That's what capitalists are about. And they employ workers for the purpose of making a profit and to sort of boil Marxism down to its simplest basic principle. Workers produce wealth Capitalists expropriate that wealth in the form of profit, rents, and interest, and those relations of exploitation are sustained by the state, which will intervene with coercion if necessary through ideology, uh, preferably. Uh, but, but these relations of production are very closely related to the state. Now, that said, uh, in order to produce profitably, capitalism at, at any given time only needs so much labor to produce that wealth and to produce that profits. And it's the people who aren't necessary, not socially necessary to the production process that Marx is calling the relative surplus population. And primarily as a result of, of mechanization and now more automation, and we're about to see the age of artificial intelligence intervene, fewer and fewer workers, less and less labor yeah. is necessary to produce more and more wealth, which means that the inherent long-term tendency of capitalism is to generate an ever larger relative surplus population. That is people who are not necessary to the production process. Marx even uses terms like OFAL, and, which is a waste, a byproduct, that the lumpen proletariat and the surplus population are essentially the byproduct of capitalist development, that are, but they grow larger even though they're not necessary to it. Now, the difficulty is that in a capitalist society, income, at least for most of us, is tied to labor. You don't earn an income unless you have a job. But as a larger and larger proportion of the population become relative surplus, that claim to an income disappears. And so you get this group of people uh, that gets larger with time. And what I wanted to suggest is that the relative surplus population is, is a very dense and complex concept in Marx. The lumpen proletariat is at the very bottom of it. But Marx does recognize that there are all sorts of people in between 
that sometimes are called a semi-proletariat. They, they get people with part-time jobs, mm -hmm. people with jobs that are have such low wages, they're not capable of, of maintaining or sustaining your existence at that wage. Uh, people whose skills become obsolete and get tossed out of the workforce. People who become too old to work and maybe don't have a, a large enough pension to live on. These are all people gravitating towards becoming what Marx called the lump in proletariat. Now, how does that tie to contemporary politics? Well, I think that process has been well underway in the United States for quite some time. It accelerated probably uh, starting in the mid-1970s up to the present. And for the first time, really in the last decade or two, we've seen it hit what used to be kind of the white, blue-collar working class who have lost their jobs. Now, Suzanne pointed out they'll blame it on immigrants, they'll blame it on minorities. The reality is a lot of it is the result of automation. Their jobs yeah. are just not there anymore. Uh, and they keep, as the lumpen proletariat does in Marx, they keep longing for this glorious past, a time when they thought America was great. Uh, and you've got this ever burgeoning kind of white lumpen proletariat in America, uh, in rural places, in small towns, increasingly, and in, even in suburbs. And they have done exactly what Marx describes that they would do in the 18th Brumaire, when he wrote that book about France in the 1840s and 50s. They vote for a strong man who promises to make America great again, to return the coal mines to production, to bring back the steel mills, to bring back the auto factories, when the reality is those things are never coming back. And if they do, it won't be in the way that they thought they would because they won't have the skills to work in those jobs. Uh, and so I think you're in this phase that I, I call sort of a, a lump in state. I think that is the sort of the mass base. And as Marx describes them, they become reactionary. They become violent. They become angry. And, you know, these are the people you see at the Trump rallies. These are the bikers for Trump. Uh, these are the Oath Keepers and the Patriot Pair and the Proud Boys. Uh, and they're all out there sort of coalescing. And, and Trump, I think, very effectively knows how to tap their sense of a longing for the past. Uh, and, of course, who ultimately benefits from it? Well, just as in the 18th Brumaire, it's a finance aristocracy who loots and pillages the public treasury uh, to the tune of trillions of dollars while promising these people that their jobs will come back. And, of course, they're not coming back. Well, OK, I would add one caveat to that. China, the industrial deindustrialization and the, the Trump voter really was put out of work by automation, but it was also put out of work by the the uh, capitalist class deciding that they were going to search for much cheaper labor in China and, and Mexico. And they just, they just deindustrialized you know, the swing states that have that went for Trump. I mean, that's my take on it. You can or can't agree. It's, it doesn't really matter. Um, could I could I just just intervene and, and sort of piggyback that la that last point, Jonathan, and 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 highlight some of the points that that Clyde made, which were yep. excellent. Um, one thing that I would add to this, and and sort of tying into much cheaper labor, two things. One is that financialization, so the surplus money sloshing around, right? I mean, what do we have? Five hundred ninety-five trillion dollars worth of derivatives out there. Um, you know, that is a huge motor, right? As well as this, you know, search for cheaper and cheaper labor through automation and and race to the bottom in the global south, etc. But I think we can't underestimate how important. You know, thinking about capitalism again and how we think through this, um, the nature of capitalism, that this surplus money, Marx would say, is has been a lever to overcoming barriers to capitalism. Let me let me explain that. Yeah. Um, the rise of finance historically in Marxian analyses has always always been accompanied by these barriers to making money were really deriving profit from, from production. And that would be considered, and many people would say, this is a, a crisis of overaccumulation, right? There's a glut of, of goods out there. Um, you know, there's a lot of goods, but a lot of people can't afford these goods, right? So there's an overproduction of goods. Um, there's tons of money out there. Um, the former finance minister, um, uh, Yanis Varoufakis, said, you know, we're, we're in the middle of two mountains, a mountain of idle money, yeah. the, the trillions of dollars of, of you know, derivatives, and a mountain of debt. 
right? And that there's a refusal, right? Because you can make yeah. so much money from making money out of nothing, right? And then when it falls apart, the state comes in and bails it out with the tarp, et cetera, et cetera, yep. right? So there's one side. That's a lever. And the other lever is exactly this surplus population that Marx talks about. He says this is the lever to the continued accumulation of capitalism, especially when there's a barrier. And what you just said, Jonathan, is super important, right? Cheaper and cheaper labor, right? So yep. let's have a lot of people. Let's yep. fragment them along racial lines, right? Like in the yep. EU at the time with this rise of unemployment and long-term underemployment, what do they do? They say, hey, let's bring in the Eastern European states, <laughs> Bulgaria, yeah. Romania, right? And who are the people in these tent cities in Berlin and Vienna and Brussels, et cetera? These people, right? But capitalism needs them, right? You know, the, and then my last point, COVID, right? COVID made very clear that these people are essential these low-wage, yes. low-skilled part-time workers, and at the same time, they're indispensable in the yep. sort of theoretical, right, driving down wages, fragmenting the bikers from the Mexicans that are living in the cellars, you know, people's cellars, a great piece in the New York Times, you probably read it, where these migrants from largely Latin America are living in these cellars, <laughs> bolstering up the mortgages of people, you know, the middle and lower middle class, or maybe even surplus populations to pay for their rent, to pay for their mortgages, right? And these are the people that service the higher skilled service sector employees, right? They are our nannies, they make coffee for us, right they they sell us things in stores yeah. right um they yeah. pick up our garbage the the, yeah. the, the ups delivery uh, fedex yeah. people right so i think that's really important that sort of essential yet disposable they're disposable and they're essential at the same time how does that get managed okay let me ask all, all of you this question it seems to me that our our corporate world is not the corporate world of 20 even you know 30 40 years ago there you had a manufacturing corporate world, General Motors, Westinghouse, U.S. Steel, where labor made things um, and objects. Now it's all, you know, it's Skype, <laughs> what we're on, it's uh, Apple, it's Microsoft. It's a completely different kind of corporate world that, 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 that now does software rather than actually making something. They seem like smart people. They, the corporate America is younger now. It's hipper. It's it's not these stodgy old people that that, that we think of a corporate baron, you know, capitalist baron. It, it's it was you know it, it's it's a younger it's 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 a Zuckerberg. Is is whatever you think of him, he's young. He's a different kind of person. Do they really not see that they're creating a society that is so inherently in, unequal and potentially dangerous, or do they not? Can they cannot do anything about it or do they not care or why does the modern corporation, which doesn't look like the old corporation, not intervene in our society to lobby the political class to make us more equal and, and, and stop the growth of the, 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 and the oppression of the proletariat and the lumpen proletariat? This is Isaac here. Um, I think that's a great question. And I think that um, Marx's argument, especially in Capital, uh, vol volume one is going to be is an argument that it doesn't really have to do with individuals. Right. It's not a matter of individuals being smart or not. Right. In which case you would see history kind of moving in these kind of ep episodic bursts of smart person does this, dumb person does that, smart person does this, and history just kind of meanders based on the intellect of individuals. Instead, Marx's argument is that you have a system, a systemic structure, in which you have the accumulation of wealth, of capital, and capital gets used to replace living labor, like people who are working for wages with dead labor or fixed capital, right, with machinery, and, and that is in the interest of capital. And when capital accumulates more wealth, replaces more um, living la uh, labor with dead labor, and replaces human beings with machines, that's able to drive down the price of goods and commodities that, uh, that are being produced, and therefore drives down the cost of the commodities, and therefore the cost that, that it takes to reproduce a particular okay. la la labor, right? Okay. So I in that way, I, I, okay. I think that, that we've reached a point where um, you know, we're at we're at the point where we have this kind of accumulation of capital has reached a point in which labor is almost becoming irrelevant. Okay, I get that, but at the same time, those societies that do create that dynamic are on un, basically unlivable. 
if you go to Mexico, you know, your your kids are escorted to school by armed guards and bulletproof cars. If you go to Manila, you're liable to go to a fast food restaurant. You're going to see two machine gun toting guards at the fast food restaurant while you have your lunch. Uh, you, you know, uh, people live behind barbed wire uh, country houses in uh, Brazil and in the rest of you know Latin America. So that can't be a whole lot of fun to live like that as a wealthy person, feeling that you're going to be kidnapped and robbed and uh, your, your children are going to be ransomed back to you at a moment's notice. That's kind of what I still don't, you, I, I, I hear you and I get you and it's certainly articulate, but I don't understand why anybody would want to move in that, the, the capitalist class well, would want to move in that extreme direction. It can I just, can I just say, please, I mean, I, I, yeah. That's what you're here I for. Mean, just, just, <laughs> <laughs> When you said, you know, Zuckerberg doesn't care or Gates doesn't care, they they do care. I mean, you know, they they really do. But their response to this situation has been uh, a very market-oriented framework around, you know, uh, what people have coined uh, corporate philanthropism, Co corporate philanthropism, right? Um, and you know, we see, I, you probably in the United States know all about the Gates Foundation's love for charter schools, right? And yeah. how they've, you know, pushed down the teachers union, et cetera. This type of corporate philanthropism, the way that they 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 give their money, if you will, is, is in a highly marketized, you know, outcome results-based manner that, that you know, bias, is biased towards market solutions, right? And, um, and, and that's really problematic, right? So that is another way that this, these type of social issues are being resolved through private money. Instead of taxing these guys, right? We're saying, yeah, you go and yeah, and Mark Zuckerberg Foundation, you can go do your thing. Call the shot. Tell us what the problem is, and then go fix it. That's cool. great because you're, you're in right. an untransparent Gates, manner, right? Gates is almost uh, Gates Foundation is almost as the budget of the of the World Health Organization. Absolutely bigger. Yeah. Yeah, let me add to that. And I think there is a, another even more extreme wing of the so-called billionaire class at this point, who I think are genuinely uh, immersed in what I would call a utopian libertarianism, which is an extension of this, the market is the solution to all problems. But I think you have people like a Theo, Peter Theo, you mentioned Elon Musk, Steve Mnuchin, who's the Secretary of Treasury. Yeah. These are people who genuinely believe, uh, they won't say it, but they're social Darwinists. They think that the market rewards talent and it punishes failure and that they are where they are because they're brilliant and be damned to everybody else. Uh, and they genuinely believe that their wealth can isolate them. It can insulate them from these problems. And I think that they are perfectly willing to accept a Donald Trump and to accept the armed guards. In fact, you, you may have noticed recently uh, they have private airports. They're ready. They're ready for the Hunger Games. They were buying up land in Australia, in New Zealand yeah. and building underground bunkers to prepare themselves for the coming apocalypse. So I think there's a large segment of the billionaire class, particularly in the United States, who sort of has this hunger game vision of the future where they can use hunger and debt and poverty as a means of social control, uh, entertain us with sports and other TV and whatever it is they want to do. Uh, and it's a very dark, dystopian vision of the future for most of us. For them, it's living in the in a tower in, in splendor and luxury. And I think large numbers of them are so dissociated from the social structure that they're perfectly prepared to move in that direction. And, and they see that as their utopia. So who wins on this bloom, the Bloombergs and the Tom Stayers of this world that are the, that are campaigning for social equality or the Peter Thiel and the Munchens? I mean, how, how does this play out? How does Marx think this plays out? Well, that's one of the interesting questions in Marx himself. And I know Su Suzanne and I maybe exchanged an email or two on this uh, in Marx's vision of the future. He doesn't really talk or think about this dystopian possibility because in Das Kapital, as in the Communist Manifesto, uh, things reach a condition of misery where the proletariat rises up. Right. They, they socialize the means of production. Uh, the problem of the lumpen proletariat disappears and the logic of capitalist development ends because capitalism ends. So Marx never imagined a future where this logic would continue for another 150 years and that this ever-growing relative surplus population would sort of unfold over a much longer period of time. So Marx himself, I don't think, 
even imagined this scenario. He okay. thought people would end it long before now. What if we imagine, I guess we don't even have to imagine because there's a lot of lot of issues here that were the same. I mean, not getting rid of capitalism, um, but going back to, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a revisionist, but, you know, back to, you know, federal, uh, the Roosevelt era, right, with the, yeah. with the New Deal and with all its warts, right? But what's being discussed right now by by um, OAC and um, is it OAC? Sorry, AOC and Sanders. Okay, <laughs> we both have dyslexic problems. <laughs> but you know, the New Green Deal is fabulous, right? It, it's a great start. It, there's a lot of buy-in with that. There are ecological limits to this. Even if we can't get our act together politically, there are eco like the planet is burning, right? Um, and hence the bunkers, et cetera. But there's also COVID, which as we know, even, even the most conservative reports by the IMF and the OECD say this is gonna be the deepest, the longest recession since the Great Depression. So perhaps we don't need a World War, World War I or World War II. COVID has come to actually maybe mobilize people to push for something like the New Green Deal. Because I think the production is an answer to all of this, right? A medium-term answer, but it has to be a smart way of producing and getting people working again, right? Having, you know, these jobs that are well-paying as well as, you know, guaranteeing basic income, et cetera, right? I mean, how do you guys feel about that? Do you think that COVID could be the sort of opportunity for huge social transformation to alleviate a lot of the pain that the lumber proletariat are now experiencing? I think there's certainly a possibility. In fact, I would say just yesterday I was giving a presentation to to some CEOs in the Northeast, and they were actually talking about universal basic income. And they were talking thirty, forty thousand dollars a year uh, as the basis because they were saying that they weren't going to be able to put people back to work in the ways that they had previously. Yeah, I think that the I know that the Coke this is Isaac. Yeah, this is Isaac. Apologies. Um, I know that the Cokes. Um, are freaking out over the res the government's response to COVID, right? So all of a sudden, in what way? On, in what on, way are they freaking out? Because on a turn of a dime, the go the government is once again responsible for saving the economy, and has yeah. proven that it can in in be very very credible, very very popular in its support of giving individuals direct payments. Yeah, and that this kind of sets a precedent that such a policy is possible. I think my take is, uh, from what the three of you have said is is that is somewhat somewhat interesting. I think capitalism does want to save itself and it's uh, by printing all this money uh, for all the payments for the covid and going into the debt and you know spending trillions of dollars to make people whole and businesses whole and the paycheck protection program because it doesn't want to see the lump and proletariat even grow any further. Uh, it, it seems that it does need to have, you know, a, a stable middle class, even if it's not the middle class of the 50s or the 60s. They wouldn't be doing all of this money printing uh, against, you know, the fiscal conservatives if they didn't think that it was necessary. Uh, otherwise, we really would go down. The depression, the depression would look like child's play. It looks to be like, you know, our society wants to wants to draw uh, yes uh, this 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 floor under under creating even more misery in the country because nobody wants to see that. Is that does that make any sense? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Marx has always said there has to be a social basis for accumulation to take place. Ah. How thick that social <laughs> basis is, how inclusive, right, and how generous that social basis is, is political. At the end of the day, you have the 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 you know with with Teddy Roosevelt, right? You had a complete destruction of the world economy, right? So we had to rebuild, and you had you know Henry Ford, and you know all this sort of came together, right? We have the technology, we have the know-how, and you know maybe COVID is our World War One and Two, right? Um, but what we need to do too, as progressives, is to also realize the massive amounts of, of fragmentation that occurs through discourse, through law, right, through media, et cetera, and, and 
and you know othering these people, right? Making the undeserving racialized poor, right? Um, you know, a reality. Uh, the non-integrating foreigners that are taking our jobs. I think that there has to be sort of an attempt, you know, it's a collective attempt to sort of identify and and politically mobilize against this, right? That we are really all in this together, right? Um, uh, in order to really get that social basis as as widespread and and inclusive and meaningful as possible, Clyde, yes, let me Clyde. ask you a question. Sure. In your book on on the lumpen proletariat, what is your view of the fear of becoming one of them by some by a blue collar worker that has been laid off from his fifty five dollar you know uh, manufacturing job in the Midwest? Uh, which moved to Mexico, and now he, he has faced with working in an old age home or a senior citizen center, you know, for twelve or thirteen or fourteen dollars an hour. How how does the 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 blue collar, deindustrialized worker feel about falling into into the despair of being in the lumpen proletariat? What what is your book? Is is it talk about that? What's what's the story with that? The basic reaction to that, I think, is it's twofold. Uh, one is a longing for a return to the past, uh, a belief that that old $55 a dollar uh, hour job is going to come back. Uh, and they want somebody who's going to take them back to that past. Wow. And certain, Donald Trump has promised them that, as illusory as it is. The other is resentment and anger. Uh, somebody has to be held accountable for what's happened to me, That I, why I'm now gone from working at a $50 an hour job to a Walmart greeter part-time. And the, the ruling class, I think, has been very effective, as Suzanne has mentioned many times, at fragmenting people along all sorts of lines, whether it be race, gender, ethnicity, nationality, immigration status. Well, who is to blame for me having lost this job? It's the immigrants. It's the people living in the third world. It's the, the brown people who've taken my job away. Uh, rather than the reality is, it's your employer who took your yeah. job away. It's the capitalist class who took your job away because they don't have any use for you anymore. But somebody or like they can Don or they can replace you for less. I mean, you know, they exactly. just uh, right. They yeah. can replace you for less. And mm -hmm. Donald Trump has been very effective on their behalf in mobilizing those divisions and mobilizing the that that form of resentment uh, in order to to keep us moving in sort of that direction to deflect blame to the people at the bottom of the social structure who are the most powerless and have the least resources to do anything about it, rather than looking at the Steve Manentians, right, who made his fortune evicting hundreds of thousands of people from their homes in the Great Depression. I mean, the Great Recession. The Great Recession. Did Marx predict that this would happen? <laughs> did, he, did he think, did he see, the, did he see this, this play out? Well, as I've said, uh, I think Marx... Uh, even though sort of he postponed the revolution many times in his lifetime, yeah. I think he expected that we would have done something about it uh, long before now. I don't think he ever envisioned the logic of capitalist development unfolding to the extent and for as long as it has that, that people would have had enough of it. I do want to bring up one other thing, though, uh, as we were talking about you know, COVID and the possibility of going to a universal basic income and showing that the government can do this. Let's also not forget, you know, everybody got their 12 or the $1,700 check, 2,400, I think at most. Let's not forget 75% of that $2.2 trillion went to businesses. I know. And, it, and before that was the one and a half trillion dollars that went to tax breaks to billionaires and large profitable corporations. So most of the government spending right now is not going to the people who most need it. It's going to the very people who don't need it at all. It's just a massive looting of the public treasury by the ruling class. It's almost like the just the, the big party they're having. And I would I, I would also argue that the medical class has joined in that looting. You know, the hospital system is now in the hands of five or six corporations. The public health insurance health insurance is in the hand of three or four corporations at this point. So all of that money for you know treatment and medical medical facilities is really going to uh, you know a, a, a new class of industrialists, which are in fact you know the hospital systems, which aren't nonprofit. They are highly profitable. And they want more profit. This is Isaac here. I think yeah. that that we should just be very clear that we do live in a socialist country, right? Like, I, 
the Cokes and uh, the the Mercers and the, all of those those folks will hand ring about socialism and hand ring about communism, et cetera, et cetera, and create a whole narrative about the threat of communism and how we need to return to rugged individualist a libertarian fantasy land, la la land that they believe in. But the truth is, is that we live in a a socialist country, and it's socialism that's a lemon socialism, right? When capitalists destroy the economy as they did in 2008, or they're doing now uh, firms and airlines and companies that instead of creating a reserves, like bought back their own shares and are yeah. now um, on, on, on the threat of, finan of financial insolvency are being bailed out um, and over and over again. And I think that in a way, the story of the lump and pro proletariat is, is really, really important because it's that question of how is that group of people that are increasingly not bailed out or get crumbs off of the table, right? How are they going to respond to seeing this over and over again? And I, I think that, that Suzanne is right, that there's reasons to be somewhat optimistic about uh, where we are now. I think it's a really quite transformative moment where the heroes that we're talking about um, in, in COVID are grocery store workers and nurses and there is a kind of revalorization of the centrality of labor in our economy again. And I think that that is something that um, is worth re uh, recognizing and, al and also trying to make into a more robust political pro process, right? It's not Zuckerberg who made a gazillion dollars. It's everybody who programs for Zuckerberg, right, um, and works for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that that's really interesting, I just want to go back to to Jonathan's point earlier about corporations and why corporations are like this. Um, you know, one of the things that's really interesting over the last several decades is that, you know, corporations used to, um, you know, raise their money differently, right? I mean, now with all the type of regulation that's going on with financialization, corporations can also engage in this type of activity, right? And so we know that GM, General Motors, is making most of its profit through GMAC, right, through its financing arm, to so that poor people or people that can't afford, you know, these cars and pickups, et cetera, can buy them at high interest rates. That's where it's making its money. Right. Um, and and all these corporations playing themselves out over and over again. You know, throughout COVID, I kept thinking, well, why are these corporations? And back to Isaac's point, why are these corporations just living on the verge of bankruptcy? This is crazy. I mean, wait, this is we're only one month into this. Right. Don't they have a reserve? You know, don't they have savings? Don't they have, you know, investments? In, in, and they don't because they're no. all playing this game, right? No, no, um, so this, this high leverage. debt, exactly. Yeah. But here's the other side to all of that is that there's also, and you know, positive side is through the sort of, um, you know, financialization of corporations, if you will. This is Clyde. I'd like to jump in there because I think, I think Suzanne has taken us uh, from, from the, the question of Marx to the question posed by Lenin of what is to be done. Uh, how do we move? What? What? How do we move from from here to there? And you know, I'll, I'll take the pessimistic view here. Uh, what we have in the United States is the Democratic Party, uh, who's going to put forward a candidate who 40 years ago would have been considered a moderate Republican, who's already come out and said he's against Medicare for all, who's already come out and said he's against uh, student debt relief in any significant way, who's basically touting what would have been a Republican Party platform uh, not too many years ago. And that's all they have to offer. And actively, a party actively working to suppress its uh, progressive wing, which is an old story, you know, got the, whether it's here, the British Labor Party or, or many others. Uh, what is the vehicle for any type of progressive transformation or even a breakthrough in the United States? I'm still fascinated and want to, I want to finish this discussion and explore the, 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 the nature of the uh, lumpen proletariat and the role it's now playing in in this. Okay, if you want to go to the election in this election and the in the Democrats, do they care about the lumpen proletariat? Is there are they do they vote first of all? Is it is it something that that the Democratic Party has a platform or a program to alleviate the suffering of the homeless and the addicted and the incarcerated, um, or, or are they just going to be forgotten and grow you know grow some more? Well, depending on how you define that term, Mr. Clyde, depending on how you define the term lumpen proletariat, if we use the term relative surplus population, which is the more expansive term, uh, yeah, that they vote, but they vote in much lower proportions uh, than the rest of the population. We know that there's a very strong correlation between educational attainment and voting. 
between income and voting, between race and ethnicity and voting. So the more lumpen you are, as we say, the less likely they are to vote. Uh, to the extent that they vote, I think they're split along racial and ethnic lines. The white lumpen proletariat will vote for Trump. Wow. But I think what's most important about them politically is, is not whether they vote or don't vote. It's that they, they form a kind of a mass uh, base and even a paramilitary wing uh, of the Trumpist movement. You know, these are, as I've said before, these are the people who yeah. show up at Trump rallies. These are the people who wear, refuse to wear masks when they go to Costco. These are the people who are the bikers for Trump, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the armed militias who show up at the Michigan State House and nobody does anything about it. Uh, and those people have been unleashed in the United States by Trump, and I don't see anyone who's prepared to stand up to them. Wow. So they're, they're, they're not just victims. They are actually, um, in, your mind, in your mind, Clyde, they're actually uh, uh, very proactive in, in, in voicing their concerns and their, their anger uh, at, at uh, what's happened to them. They're not just—they're not just taking more opioids or you know drinking more or committing crimes and then getting incarcerated. It, it sounds like you're really talking about a activist class that 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 uh, is out there that are not lump and proletariat in the sense of victims. Uh, well, I'll bypass the word victim, but I think that they're not passive. Uh, there's That's a large. Right. There's word, a lot. Right. Yeah, there's a large segment of them that are they're very active. I think to the point of their own self-destruction and to the point of acting against their own class interests. Uh, but and why what, did Mark say that would happen? Uh, for some of the reasons I talked about before, he referred to them as bribe tools of reaction. And part of it had to do with the fact that of their desperate condition, that they were e easily susceptible to manipulation and bribery, partly because of their longing for a nostalgic past, that they could be mobilized by a strong man who promised them that return to the greatness uh, of their former time. Uh, and that's what Trump has done for them. He, he's, he's offered up that promise. The question is, you know, how long are they going to continue to believe this illusion? I, I think, though, that there is a risk of conflating the lumpen proletariat in the U.S. with the white, deindustrialized Trump voter, right? I think that there's also a very radical, and this is kind of where thinking through Franz Fanon and the blank, Black Panther Party's youth of, of theorizing um, uh, the lumpen proletariat, that there's a really there's also a radical potential within the lump the lumpen proletariat that maybe Marx didn't see because of the time and the context that he's he's writing he was writing in. But I think you're seeing now like anti foreclosure movements, uh, standing the protests at Standing Rock, indigenous rights movements. You're seeing the anti mass incarceration movements. You're seeing uh, movements of, among students. Um, the George Floyd protests as just yeah. a, a, as examples of a, a a large groups of populations that are disenfranchised in different ways. Right. So, sometimes yes. middle class white people who are angry um, and, and linking arms with um, um, what might, you know, uh, uh, what Mike's, uh, what Marx might more comfortably call the lumpen proletariat, right? Um, and that you have these kinds of cross solidarities, which I think that there's a little bit of a danger in thinking about the lumpen proletariat as a single thing, right? It's always this kind of, it to the degree that that's a useful term, um, that it is always multivalent and potentially revolutionary and trans. It's formative. And I think that you, you see on the one hand in the United States, you have, you know, on the one hand, you have the Michigan militia showing up at the Capitol building. Yeah. But then you also have people occupying Seattle and demands for defunding the police um, in ways that was just kind of unconceivable um, even a year ago or six months ago. Right. So I, I, I think I, that there is some radical potential within this uh, population. And it'd be uh, really interesting to find out. Um, more because I don't know this, but maybe you, somebody can can shed light on this. That you know, not to make a dichotomy between the Trump supporters are are low wage, low skill uh, people on opioids in prisons, mm. <laughs> moving in and out of prisons, and then 
um, Isaac, the, the, the sort of group that you uh, are describing as, as part of the relative surplus, surplus population, but the educated, the university educated, but under, you know, underemployed or, you know, unemployed for the most part, right? Yeah. Suffering from student loans and, and fighting for housing rights and just really angry. I mean, we saw that with the... Um, that whole demographic at the uh, Help Me Out um, Wall Street, right? Um, standing yeah. up at Wall Street, the Occupy movement, Occupy, right? right. Um, again, I don't mean to homogenize everything, right? But but and you know, there's a danger to this. But maybe there's there's a thread here in terms of then saying, okay, there's there's different segments of the surplus population in terms of education, in terms of geographical location, um, in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, etc. I don't know. Is that is that something that that is it real in the United this, States? This is yeah, I think that's absolutely an accurate description, and uh, there, it is a multivalent uh, concept. I did want to, to touch on uh, the idea of, of, of a white working class and deindustrialized working class, because actually the Black Panthers, particularly people like Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver, addressed this issue in some of their writings in uh, the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, they drew on Frantz Fanon and, in fact, argued that the lumpen proletariat had become the vanguard of socialist revolution in, in the United States, at least. And one of the reasons they suggested that is, is because they were trying to forge an alliance with the white working class on the grounds that, that they were already seeing deindustrialization, because many African-Americans in the large cities had already been deindustrialized yes. as these large factories moved out of the cities into the suburbs. So they saw that process at work. And what they argued that was that within a generation or two, uh, this very proud trade unionized white working class was going to be them. They were, they were going to be in the same, they were going to be industrialized too. And so what they were trying to argue was the lump of proletariat is the vanguard because you're all going to end up like us in the long run anyway. But they were also very concerned that doctrines of white privilege, white supremacy would blind them to the necessity of forging that interracial sort of intersectional alliance that, that might make them into a, a revolutionary or progressive force. And indeed, I think they were absolutely correct in their diagnosis of where we're at. Except, Clyde, that is so interesting, but I'm shocked to read that the majority, not a large, but a majority of Americans actually understand and support the the uh, the George Floyd protests and and are acknowledging that racial uh, inequality in the in the police force is, is an issue that they cannot live with. I, I, it's shocking to to actually come to that to, to to read those numbers and statistics. That's a very significant breakthrough, isn't it? People really exaggerate uh, their, their their ability to move up the social ladder. And I think that that's just an inherently American uh, uh, concept that that goes back to really to Horatio Alger's stories. Am I mm -hmm. am I off on that one? Mm -hmm. I think it would no, be interesting to uh, do that survey again now because I think you know I've heard uh, numbers along those lines, but I think that that's changing very rapidly. Could be very Could quickly, be. like. Um, in my political economy classes, I tell my students, when I was your age, I was living, I was in Seattle area in the 1990s, the late 1990s. You know, I said, when I graduated from college, I could be guaranteed, you know, a $50,000 yeah. a year and, and twice or three times that if I knew how, how to program computers, right? <laughs> and, and, and you guys are like a quarter of you to a third of you in this classroom will be unemployed this time oh. ne next year. Is that fair, right? Just, just is that fair that because I was born two decades or I was your age two decades ago that I would have one kind of life prospects and because you were born two decades later, you have a different kinds of life process. Is that fair? And and nobody says it is, right? And I think that there's this kind of growing realization that, hey, the 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 middle class is this myth, right? That and that um, we're we're living in an increasingly not even proletarianized world, but a, a radically deproletarianized world. I guess I'd like to just wrap up by asking the three of you to just tell me what. You think the next five or six years or you know, three, whatever time frame, rel new, relatively close time frame in America, where are we headed regarding social inequality and as a society? And where could where, where could this come out, uh, positive or negative, and tie into the tie in the lump and proletariat idea to that to that finality? What, where, where's your feeling where this where this country is going? 
the next three to five years? Uh, we'll, we'll start. We'll just start, you know, with Clyde and go to Suzanne and Isaac. I probably have a fairly dystopian view of the, of the immediate future. I think we are going to continue to see the current trends toward greater and greater inequality continue. I think that's the response to that will be a lot of social unrest and social dislocation of the type that we've already seen and are seeing right now. Uh, and I think the response to that will be an increasingly authoritarian and violent state. Uh, you did mention that uh, don't these people see it's not sustainable? And, and I would say, no, they don't. Uh, they wow. think they think it is sustainable, even if it requires force uh, to do so. Wow. Wow. OK, I mean, I, I that's certainly certainly plausible and you know, the way it's going and the way I, I the way it appears to be. I, I can't disagree with that. Uh, when so many people in the center, if you will, are, are in a state of shock that the Republican Party uh, has endorsed this uh, th this vision of America and uh, that Trump is is offered. That has nothing to do with what anybody ever thought the Republican Party was before. It clearly looks like the Republic half this country is, in fact, headed in that direction. The way that you you know, and endorsing that repression and the way that you just articulated it. So, that's certainly not it may just be dystopian, but it's certainly not far fetched, in my opinion. So I I, I definitely I, I would agree with that. Again, I think we have to be careful. Yeah. I know we're talking about the United States, but then I'm thinking yes. of Canada and, you know, Western Europe. I think repression is very much so the name of the game, right? Whether that's the repression of debt, whether that's the repression of the prison system, right? Um, but I also think that uh, COVID-19 is going to be, you know, I mean, we're three months into this, but it's going to be a big, big yeah unknown right yeah um will it be used as it has been um as further repression right so okay we can get a lot of things through we saw that with the pipeline right let's just push this through they, they're not getting out and protesting anymore right so that type of, of situation where the, you know the state the state powers will become even greater on uh, in terms of undemocratic uh nature right? right um and the only push against that is that you know at the end of the day that social basis that capitalism needs to keep going has to be there right and if we're all all of us have continued to lose our jobs and yeah. not earn enough money to buy their stuff right um and make their coffee <laughs> take care for their children then um that, that that needs to be balanced in the sort of increasingly as as clyde said you know repressive uh situation of dark dy dystopia going on so there's you know i always say there's a contradiction going on where we have an opportunity to push back but absolutely in the times of COVID, that has really changed the game right got it wow Oof, this is Isaac, tough. that leaves yeah. you Boy, this is a tough one. Um, you know, if we want a different world, we got to fight like hell to make it a different world. Um, but it's something that's worth fighting for. And I think it's reasonable that the odds might be 50 50. You know, mm. maybe, uh, maybe I'm optimistic. Wow. Okay. Thank you all very much. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated, all rights reserved.